and welcome to the Great Thinkers podcast, in which current fellows of the British Academy introduce the academics that have inspired their work and shape how we see the world today. What would A.V. Dicey, FBA, the leading advocate of the rule of law who died in 1922, think about Britain's current constitutional tangles? In this episode, Vernon Bogdanor, FBA, and Connor Geerty, FBA, try to answer that question with a look back at the jurist's life and work. My name is Vernon Bogdanor, Professor of Government at King's College London. The great thinker I have chosen is Albert then Dicey, one of the founders of the British Academy, who lived from 1835 to 1922 and was Vineerian Professor of English Law at Oxford and a Fellow of All Souls College. He's best remembered for his great work, Introduction to the Study of the Law of the Constitution, first published in 1885. No person or body is recognised by the law of England as having a right to override or set aside the legislation of Parliament. The purpose of these understandings is to secure what is known abroad as the sovereignty of the people. The Constitution is the result of the ordinary law of the land. A remarkable feature of Dicey's work is that the conceptual scheme he laid down there is still widely discussed today. It's really the point of departure for all discussions about the British Constitution. And now I'm going to turn to Conor Geerty, Professor of Law at the London School of Economics. Now, Conor, why do you think we are still studying the work of a man whose main book was published over 130 years ago and who died nearly 100 years ago? I think in academe, Vernon, we often underestimate the power of lucid prose. The beauty of his writing has dramatically enhanced his reputation. And of course, the ideas are there and they have dominated partly because there's not been a written constitution, the thing hasn't been superseded as a result of some new framework in the 20th century. But if you were to put it to me why, the answer is because once you start reading that guy, you get drawn in, even if you disagree with them. And that has made him last. You're absolutely right, the clarity of his writing. But he did try and isolate some of the fundamental principles of the Constitution. And the first one that he isolated, which has proved a matter of contention since the time he wrote it, the principle of the sovereignty of Parliament, the doctrine that Parliament can enact any law that it chooses, and that no outside body, such as a court, can declare any act of Parliament unconstitutional or illegitimate. From the Introduction to the Study of the Law of the Constitution, 1885. Parliament has, under the English Constitution, the right to make or unmake any law whatever, and further, no person or body is recognised by the law of England as having a right to override or set aside the legislation of Parliament. This, of course, became very important during his lifetime and in a sense is even more important today because some people say that the principle of the sovereignty of Parliament was incompatible with our membership of the European Union. And I think it's fair to say, isn't it, Connor, that Dicey would have been opposed to our membership of the European Union. I think he would have made a fair bit of money writing for the Daily Mail, actually, because he would have brought home the taking back control point very well. His writing on parliamentary sovereignty is, I think, why we still talk about him. 
here was a country with no written constitution. It needed somebody to come along and kind of crystallise where the thing was, and in crystallising it, confirm it. And the thing was the British constitution, and where it was, was Parliament is sovereign. And Dicey brilliantly followed the logic of all of that. He'd, I'd say, have said of the European Communities Act 1972, you can do it, but your bonkers will try and undo it, and what Parliament giveth, Parliament can take it back, and sovereignty will be reasserted, which is why I think he'd end up writing in the Daily Mail. Well, of course, the principle of the sovereignty of Parliament does explain why we don't have a written or codified constitution, because any British constitution could be summarised in just eight words. Whatever the Queen in Parliament enacts is law. But I wonder what Dicey would have said about the European Communities Act of 1972. He didn't deny that although Parliament couldn't limit its sovereignty, it could, if it wished, abrogate or abdicate its sovereignty. And perhaps Parliament did that when it joined the European Community, as the European Union then was, in 1973. Perhaps that Act of 1972 involved a structural change in the British Constitution by which it abrogated or abandoned its sovereignty. Is that right, Connor? Was it a revolutionary change, a much more revolutionary one than politicians perhaps appreciated in 1972? If you read the Research Standing Committee minutes and you see Geoffrey Howe as the then Solicitor General, an important figure in Heath's government, taking this through the lower house, the country's divided, it's very important for them to stress how little is changing. So it's sort of obviously parliamentary sovereignty remains. This is merely a sort of little bit of housekeeping. We're going to bring in this European thing, which would be kind of delegated legislation. So that's the way in which it was presented as the European Communities Act, enabling all these other people to do stuff under authority of the actor. But when you have masses of stuff, some of it not even yet in English, together with a court outside the jurisdiction adjudicating and adding dynamic growth to that which you've taken on, and when you're committed in advance to new laws which will supersede whatever happens to have been there before, you've got something which looks terribly like a revolution. The British postponed that for as long as they could until the Spanish fishing vessels ruined the whole thing because what happened was an act of parliament in 1988 said you should do X, but European law had said you shall not do X, and therefore... The traditional dicey view would have been that the later Act of Parliament trumps the earlier. The fishing vessels protection, according to the British, will trump the Spanish. The Merchant Shipping Act is good law. So from about 1988, with this upheld in the House of Lords, which was then our Supreme Court, you had an understanding that something big had happened, which was that while the European Communities Act 1972 was in place, you had a superior authority outside the jurisdiction. But the European Communities Act itself is not something you can not repeal. So Dicey would have been saying, possibly, of that act, that it can be repealed and Parliament is, in the words of the campaigners, now taking back control. And it's not unconstitutional. The Europeans are not querying the right of departure and so they're not challenging the sovereignty of Parliament in that regard. And this shows, surely... First, that the sovereignty of Parliament means what the judges interpret it to mean, that it's the judges who decide what this concept means. And secondly, that there is a conflict between the principle of the sovereignty of Parliament and Dicey's second principle, which was that of the rule of law. Now, in Dicey's terms, I think there couldn't be such a conflict because 
it didn't, I think, perhaps occur to him that Parliament would pass or could pass illiberal legislation, but clearly it can. So we now move into the territory where Dice's first two principles can contradict each other. The way in which what Dicey understood parliamentary sovereignty to be has been dismantled is rooted in the way in which the European Court of Justice can make nonsense of opt-outs. The British in 1972 didn't quite understand they were buying into a project which involved a court with a sense of itself. Already it had, with human rights developments in the 60s and early 70s, a sense of itself completely alien to the British experience of what courts were. But it's also fair to say, isn't it, that if you take the principle of the sovereignty of Parliament seriously, the European community would never have admitted us that they would have said, you can't just cherry-pick. If you join us, you subordinate your own constitution to the European constitution, which is now a superior law-making body. And we're back to the quirkiness of the British constitution. It didn't have a moment of honest addition to the written constitution. It had this idea of what is an act of parliament and how sovereign is it. For Dicey, there could be no conflict between the sovereignty of parliament and the rule of law, since the rule of law, by his definition, could not bind the legislature. With us, the law of the constitution, the rules which in foreign countries naturally form part of a constitutional code, are not the source, but the consequence of the rights of individuals, as defined and enforced by the courts. Thus, the Constitution is the result of the ordinary law of the land. Now, modern legislation in Britain has sought to ensure the two principles do not conflict. In particular, the Human Rights Act of 1998 sought to preserve the Dicean Constitution. It did not give judges the power to strike down legislation contravening human rights, as is the case in many other countries, for example, the United States and Germany. Instead, the judges were given the power if they believed that a particular statute or part of a statute could not be construed in accordance with the Human Rights Act to issue a declaration of incompatibility. But such a declaration has no legal effect. It is merely a statement, and it is up to Parliament, if it so wishes, to amend or repeal the offending statute or part of a statute. Suppose, however, Parliament does not wish to do so, then there would be a genuine conflict between the sovereignty of Parliament and the rule of law, not in terms of Dicey's definition, but in the terms prescribed by the Human Rights Act. When I asked a very senior judge what would happen if there were to be a conflict between the sovereignty of Parliament and the rule of law as defined in the Act, he replied with a smile, that is a question that ought not to be asked. The Human Rights Act is a typically British compromise, which has, so far at least, worked. Some would say it's an example of having our cake and eating it. The Human Rights Act, of course, goes to a tremendous trouble to preserve parliamentary sovereignty. Section 3 goes out of its way to say nothing in this act shall ever entrench upon parliament sovereignty. So paradoxically, it protects government from being impugned for acting through parliament to destroy rights. But if you repeal the Human Rights Act, the common law rights are not so deferential to parliament as is the human rights law generated by the Human Rights Act. And so it's possible you could find yourself in a situation where courts could strike down acts of parliament for breaching fundamental access to justice, because fundamental access to justice is a common law right, not necessarily a human or convention right.
Dicey has further claims to fame. He was the first to advocate use of the referendum in Britain. The referendum, he argued, offered the one form of constitutional protection possible in a country with a sovereign parliament. Now, it might seem at first sight as if Dicey contradicted himself in supporting both parliamentary sovereignty and the referendum. But that is not so, for if Parliament can enact any law that it likes, then it can enact a law providing for a referendum. What it cannot do is to enact a law providing for a legally binding referendum. A government can voluntarily agree to be bound by the outcome of a referendum, but a sovereign Parliament cannot be so bound. However, politically, one would not normally expect MPs to go against the wishes of the people. Dicey favoured the referendum because he wanted to defeat proposals for Irish Home Rule, which, so he believed, would not be supported by the British electorate. This guy, in his desire to produce an outcome which he desires, the smashing of the Home Rule movement, suddenly becomes the great believer in referenda. Well, are we supposed to believe that? Somehow or other, constitutional necessity could incorporate a referenda as long as it produced the right answer. He wouldn't have been as keen on a referenda that might have produced an answer with which he disagreed. On parliamentary sovereignty, though, Parliament can, of course, say it will be bound by any result of a referendum, but it will not be bound by any result of a referendum. Parliament on Monday might decide that it will follow the referendum on Tuesday, and on Wednesday it says, I couldn't give a damn. It can even impliedly repeal its earlier promise. There is here, it's becoming evident, and we've seen it since the referendum in 2016, a mismatch between law and politics. In law, the referendum is merely advisory, it's completely irrelevant, the country chugs along, Parliament can do it at once. But the political power of the referendum, especially in an age of rising what is called in shorthand populist concerns about elites and so on, is such that many MPs seem to regard themselves as really now the delegates of the people, vicariously implementing the decision of a referendum. I'm not sure that he would have approved, Vernon, even if the outcome had been the one he wanted, of the way in which independent members of parliament have been regarding themselves as mere mouthpieces of the people. He wouldn't have liked that. I think you've also drawn attention to a very significant conflict which the 2016 referendum brought out between the two principles of the sovereignty of parliament and the sovereignty of the people. And a colleague of mine at King's said that referendum was the most important constitutional event since the restoration of 1660, for this reason, that for the first time in British history, MPs and peers are voting for something in which they do not believe, but they feel required to vote for something they do not believe in because of what they regard as an instruction from the British people. So the sovereignty of Parliament is trumped in practice by the sovereignty of the people. If we move on to his work on devolution, but what he called home rule, he thought it was illogical. He thought independence was a perfectly logical solution, but he thought devolution to one part of the country was unstable. For the kinds of reasons later brought out by people like Tam Diel with their West Lothian question, that it created an unbalanced and asymmetrical constitution. And he took the view that it was so unbalanced it would inevitably lead either to federalism or, more likely in the British case, to independence. And therefore, it wasn't a real alternative to independence. Now, in the case of Ireland, really that proposition was never tested. But in the case of Scotland, it is being tested at the moment. And I think it's fair to say the jury is still out. It may have provided a safety valve 
which prevents Scottish independence, or it may prove a staging post towards Scottish independence, we don't know. He was right that the system couldn't accommodate federalism. And so you're left, if you want to acknowledge national aspiration, with devolution, our new word for home rule, controlled from the centre. And yet, Brexit again, when the issue of what you do with European powers comes up, the centre grabs and the periphery fights back and the centre has law on its side because the centre has parliamentary sovereignty on its side and it could yet break the union. Home rule, or devolution as we would now call it, was, so he believed, an unstable halfway house bound in the end to lead to separation. Since Irish home rule was never in operation except in Northern Ireland, which was loyalist, and where it was imposed in 1920, Dice's proposition could not be properly tested in relation to Ireland. But it will perhaps be tested in Scotland, where devolution was implemented in 1998 and there is considerable pressure for independence. So on Dice's contention that devolution cannot be a constitutionally stable resting place, the jury is still out. The third principle codified by Dicey was the role of conventions of the Constitution. A lawyer cannot master even the legal side of the English Constitution without paying some attention to the nature of those constitutional understandings which necessarily engross the attention of historians or of statesmen. The purpose of these understandings is to secure what is known abroad as the sovereignty of the people. Conventions were rules regulating the sovereign power, which were not enforced by the courts, but were parts of the constitutional morality of the day. An obvious example is the convention that the Queen assents to all government legislation. It would not be illegal for her to refuse to do so, but it would be unconstitutional, a breach of a fundamental convention. Conventions are designed to uphold the British system of representative government, and if an important convention is breached, the government will take action to embody the convention into statute law. That, for example, was what happened after 1909, when the House of Lords, in rejecting Lloyd George's People's Budget, broke the convention that it should not reject financial legislation. The Liberal government of the day responded by means of the 1911 Parliament Act, putting this convention into statutory form. Of Dicey's three principles, that of the sovereignty of Parliament has undoubtedly proved the most contentious, particularly since Britain joined the European Community, precursor of the European Union, in 1973. For the European Community claimed to be a legal order superior to Westminster. But how could Britain commit herself to such a legal order if Parliament was sovereign? Was there then, in 1972, when the European Communities Act was passed, a structural change in the British Constitution. Did Parliament abrogate its sovereignty, or did ministers by skilful drafting provide that community membership could be made compatible with the sovereignty of Parliament? There was certainly little doubt that Parliament could, if it so wished, repeal the European Communities Act, as indeed it has now done in the European Union Withdrawal Act of 2018, following the vote in favour of Brexit in the referendum of 2016. Indeed, the slogan of those who favoured Brexit in the referendum was bring back control, by which they meant restore the sovereignty of Parliament. But had that sovereignty ever been lost? 
If it had, then why could it not be abrogated again in some other area, for example by enacting a Bill of Rights which gave judges the power to strike down legislation contravening human rights, or by enacting a federal constitution for the United Kingdom? These questions remain still open. But perhaps it's time to sum up Dicey's legacy and ask ourselves why, again, we are still talking about him. He dominates, and in the absence of a dramatic constitutional settlement which produces its own heroes, the founders, etc., etc., he's going to continue because he captured the central elements of the English, British, haha, even he was aware of that ambiguity, English constitution, sovereignty, the rule of law, and he appeals to the historical sense of the Englishman or British person as having real rights rather than made-up paper rights. And he has a strong voice today because what he discussed is still actually with us. It is quite remarkable that someone who lived so long ago is still setting the terms of the discussion and I can't think of any other academic subject of which that is true. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the British Academy. To hear more like this, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud or your own podcast app by searching The British Academy. To find out more about the work The British Academy does, including upcoming events, please visit thebritishacademy.ac.uk.